Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies, where we, every single episode, dive into the stories and the players and the legends that make up the mythology of baseball and have made this the game that we love so much. My name's Daniel Port, and I am excited to have you here with us today. We're going to talk about a really fun player, a player that I enjoyed learning about and reading about, and that's Brooks Robinson, the Orioles legend. And But before I jump into talking about Robinson, who unfortunately passed recently a few months ago, that's why we're, we're talking about him today, I wanted to make a clarification about something I did in the last episode. So it was brought to my attention, and actually this is a great point, that I feel like when I was looking at moving Nolan Arenado ahead of Hank Greenberg, which I had done on the list during our sort of reevaluation episode last week, I had forgotten the factor in that Greenberg had lost almost four years of playing time in his prime to serving in World War II. And that is something that I've given weight to when I talk about Ted Williams and when I've talked about other players. And I didn't really factor that in for Greenberg. I did when I did the initial ranking. If you go back and listen to that episode... But I didn't this time, and I wanted to factor that back in. I think that was a great point. It was brought to me by uh, one of our Discord users, uh, Little Piranha. And I, I felt that I really wanted to come back and and reevaluate doing that. I'm going to actually reverse that decision. I'm going to keep Greenberg ahead of Nolan Arenado for now and, and see how the year plays out. Now, with that being said, I think it's time to dive into a player that, like I said, I really enjoyed reading about, really had a good time with, and that's Brooks Robinson. I feel as though throughout the existence of this podcast, I've examined all the different personality profiles you could possibly see. Uh, we've seen the otherworldly gifted, born to play baseball with a perfect smile, but secretly are chasing ghost types like Ken Griffey Jr. or Mickey Mantle. We've seen the hyper-intelligent but somewhat aloof types like Greg Maddox or the players that chip on their shoulder like Barry Bonds or Steve Carlton. We've examined players who have had to overcome great racial and social injustices such as Satchel Paige, Hank Greenberg, or Josh Gibson. We really haven't quite looked at those. The pure, beloved-by-everybody player who was genuinely kind and jovial and played the game with a, a sort of genuine, unbridled joy. It's the storybook thing we think of, but it's rarer than you think to come across such a player. And I, that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Uh, sports are hard. It takes a certain intensity for most people to reach that high of a level in any sport. And it often comes with baggage and swagger and and someone in your life driving you that hard it's tough to go through that and remain unfazed or, or changed by it there's some that would argue heck that's even a good thing when you look at some of the greatest ever and like jordan or bonds or things like that in their sports and so i think that when you do come across someone who has reached the pinnacle of the game and somehow remains this sort of pure beloved by all icon, 
it's important to understand they're the unicorn. And we should celebrate those players just as you would the hyper-competitive Jordan Bonds types uh, in sports. And that's what we're looking to do today. And if you take that profile and look for the perfect example of it in baseball, and then you made them, by the way, the greatest defensive third baseman of all time, you get one player, and that's Hall of Famer Brooks Robinson. I scoured the internet from Lansky's write-up on, on Brooks Robinson for The Athletic, to Sabre's profile on him, to the numerous profiles written about Brooks after his recent death at 86 just a few months ago. And really, across the board, there were three common things that each and every story had in common. One, Brooks Robinson was the greatest defensive third baseman ever. Two, he was arguably the nicest man to ever play the game. And three, that absolutely none of them had anything bad to say about him. That's pretty rare. Now, I had always known the name Brooks Robinson because, obviously, he's a Hall of Famer and maybe has the best old-timey baseball name ever. It's hard to beat Brooks Robinson for a name that, even if you didn't know who he was, would be like, I bet that guy played baseball in, like, the 1960s. Like, that's how perfect the name is for uh, baseball. But I, I guess I had never really known just how beloved he was. And some of that's that I'm not from Baltimore, nor was I alive when he played. But really, as you start diving into it, you start to see just how popular this guy was and how beloved he was. And the, that was really fun to dive into as I went through this profile. And what's even just as fun is I probably didn't appreciate just how good he was either. Again, I knew the name. But when you start diving into some things, he was so much better than just the base statistics look and just really you have to take the whole picture and look at it in the micro to really appreciate uh, a Robinson. But now we're going to dive into those numbers and we're going to go do our typical year to year breakdowns, all that stuff. But before we do that. I just want to share some of the quotes I found about Brooks Robinson's defense because I really want to emphasize his defense. This is a fun thing about looking at a player like this. Is we're going to talk a lot about defense, right? And I think that what's fun about talking about Brooks Robinson and defense is not only to paint this fun sort of mythological picture of the player, but I feel like it gives us some insight into who he was and into his, his soul in some ways, just because of the way he played the game. And I think that he really shows just how widely regarded his defense was throughout the league, how beloved he was by his teammates, by sports writers, by fans. I think that's a good place to start. Now, Frank Robinson, a former teammate of Brooks Robinson, was quoted as having said, I've never known anyone in any profession more adored than Brooks. We'd go on road trips, and he'd stop on the street to talk to total strangers. It's amazing that he was that good a player and that nice to everyone he met. Former Orioles second baseman Davey Johnson said, The first time I ever met Brooks was in my first spring training in 1965. I noticed that he wrote Nate with his left hand. I thought, my God, the greatest defensive third baseman does that. So I ate and wrote with my left hand for a year. It didn't do me any good, but I had to try. Like, literally, Brooks Robinson just did something, and the guy emulated it, even if it didn't make any sense to do it, because that's how good he was. It almost felt like there had to be some kind of secret sauce to it. Pete Rose uh, of the Cincinnati Reds, back who the 
face the Orioles and Brooks Robinson in the 1970 World Series. He claimed that God sent Brooks Robinson to play third base in the 1970 World Series. He caught everything but a cold. Johnny Bench, who also played on that team and was the National League MVP in 1970, faced him in, the, in, the, in that World Series. He said, I made Brooks the MVP of that World Series. I hit 14 rockets at him and he caught every single one of them. The next time I saw him was at the 1971 All-Star Game in Detroit. My second at-bat, I had a BB at him. He just scooped it up like it was nothing. I threw my hands up in the air as I ran to first base. I looked at him. He just laughed. Frank Robinson, another quote from Frank Robinson. I used to stand in the outfield like a fan and watch him make play after play, and I used to think, wow, I can't believe this. George Beard, a baseball writer from the time period, was referring to, so at the time, Reggie Jackson got a, uh, candy bar neighbor and George Beard, Gordon, oh, sorry, Gordon Beard said Brooks never asked anyone to name a candy bar after him and Baltimore people named their children after them. That, there's this thing where you're just like, that's how popular he was in Baltimore is that like people named their kids Brooks in honor of him, right? They're kids, not their dogs or things like that. They're kids. But this is my personal favorite. Let's see. So I think this is a quote about facing Robinson here. I think this is Sparky Anderson who said this. I'm beginning to see Brooks in my sleep. If I drop this paper plate, he'd pick it up in one hop and throw me out of first. It, it like gets this idea that what he did just felt like breathing. Like he just played third base that way. Just do it on instinct. And it's just such a cool thing. I like I, I could listen to people talk about Brooke Robinson playing third base defense for for hours it just sounds so cool i wish i'd been alive to see it i really do and i think we've seen over various episodes that our eyes and scouting reports can lie to us sometimes about the great defenders uh, advanced metrics you know while not perfect we'll all admit we haven't really figured out how to fully appreciate defense statistically speaking through advanced metrics but they don't really, if you look at them, support, say, Roberto Alomar or Omar Vizquel as good examples. We saw them as these, like, otherworldly defenders. And, and the numbers don't actually support that in a lot of ways. But when we talk about the guy nicknamed the human vacuum cleaner, that couldn't be farther from the truth. The statistics back it all up. It's really incredible. So Brooks Robinson is third all-time in defensive war with 39.1 total defensive war, sitting just five war behind Ozzie Smith. Yeah, Ozzie Smith. And just 0.4 defensive war behind, behind Mark Belanger, both of whom played shortstop the majority of their career. If you think about it, he was nearly at third base as valuable defensively as a bunch of shortstops. And... You'd have to actually drop all the way down to 15th all-time in defensive war before you ran into the next player in the list who played the majority of their careers at third base. And that was at 27 defensive war. So well behind Brooks Robinson here. That That is how much advanced stats loved Brooks Robinson's defense. He's third all-time in Fangraph's defensive statistic as uh, well behind both Ozzie Smith and Yadier Molina. But his 359 defense mark is 144 points higher than Adrian Beltre, who uh, was also that the player who was behind him in defensive war. Just way behind Brooks Robinson is the best fielding third baseman ever by, by advanced statistics. Oh, and by the way, in case you were curious, Robinson finished just behind Ozzie and Yadier Molina 
he was a better hitter by WRC Plus than both of them. He's first all-time in total zone runs, which measure how many runs a player saved based on the plays they made, while leading all third basemen in basically every traditional statistic. If you look at like putouts, assists, games played, he leads them all. He was an 18-time All-Star of 23 possible seasons, which ties with Rod Carew and Carl Yastrzemski for fifth all-time. He won 16 gold gloves, by the way, all of them consecutive, which is first amongst position players and second only to Greg Maddox's 18 gold gloves. And obviously pitching gold gloves, I think, don't mean the same as his position player gold gloves. So to me, he has got the most gold gloves of all time. Is it's just a remarkable achievement, especially considering, again, he won all 16 consecutively. Now, and I think when you take that all into consideration, not only is there a legitimate argument for Brooks Robinson as the greatest third baseman ever, in fact, I start to think it's a pretty clear-cut case here, there's an argument to make for Brooks Robinson as the greatest defensive player ever, period, at any position. That's how good he was on defense. Now, as a hitter, on the surface... Brooks doesn't seem like a superstar bat. Despite several seasons of above average OPS plus and WRC plus, he finished his career with just a 105 OPS plus and a 104 WRC plus for his career. But this is a bit misleading though, as he mostly had stints at the beginning and the end of his career where his bat fell flat and that pulled his career numbers down. For the most part of his career, he's an above-average hitter, albeit mostly a contact and batting-average-based hitter. And even with that, though, he still comes pretty darn close to 3,000 hits with 2,848. And while he didn't walk at a particularly high rate, he also rarely ever struck out. He, he walked, actually, as often or more often than he struck out in 10 different seasons and finished his career with 860 walks to 990 strikeouts, which was good for a 0.87 career mark, which is the same mark as Larry Doby, Jason Giambi, William McCovey, and Cal Ripken Jr. Was he an elite hitter? No, but he was still a useful one. And when you consider just how good his, his glove was, that's plenty. That's all you need, especially when you consider they finished seventh all-time amongst third basemen with 78.4 war despite his bat. So that's just giving you a picture of how good he was on defense. We've talked a lot lately about third baseman, and we will, I promise, talk about other positions soon. It uh, just kind of was the way the the chips fell, I think, recently. And we've so we, we really have talked a lot about this, and a lot of them have been club first. A third baseman like Scott Rowland, or it's interesting to see if you think Nolan Arenado is, is glove first or not. But this is a whole other way of looking at this argument. He is that good at defense that you say, I'm not going to live at the bat. And it still was, in the last seasons a good bat. I think you take that, especially when you consider that Robinson was easily one of the most popular Baltimore Orioles of all time. And his story, as we're about to go through here, is really one you would write a movie about. Except if you wrote the movie, you'd claim the movie's too perfect to be real. And he lived it. It was genuinely the way his life went. And that's fun. Yeah, like I said, it's a real genuine unicorn of a story. It's it's really something else. So now that we've taken a big picture look at his career, looked at the statistics, tried to put in perspective just how good he was, let's dive into this fairy tale life story and see why Brooks Robinson is one of the most beloved players in baseball history. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Welcome back. 
Now, when I say Brooks Robinson has a life that often seems like it's pulled from the perfect sports movie, you might think I'm exaggerating, but trust me, I don't think I am. He was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1937, and the stories of his childhood are littered with tales of learning how to hit with a sawed-off broomstick, or he learned how to make the throw from third base on his 150-person paperboy route. Like, it's idyllic. <laughs> the word idyllic comes to mind when I'm talking about Brooks Robinson and his childhood. There's no stories of overbearing parents or dark secrets from the past. Just a normal-sounding, driven child with a pretty normal, if, again, fairy tale sounding childhood, whose one sole dream was to play third base for the St. Louis Cardinals like his hero, Stan Musial. It's just, it's so perfect, it's almost boring. <laughs> if you don't realize that this isn't a movie, and instead it was just how Brooks Robinson lived his childhood. I feel like I'm supposed to talk more about it, but it was just, there was this nice, kind of good childhood. And you feel like this ends up translating over into how he played the game and why he was so beloved. There are a lot of all-time greats like Bonds, Williams, Ted Williams, and even Griffey, who loved baseball, but also seemed to kind of hate it, too, or at least hold a sort of a grudge against it. There was a very love-hate relationship there. And... Not so much for Robinson, who supposedly played baseball with a singular joy. And, you know, that he played it like playing baseball and being your teammate was just the best part of his day every day. He excelled growing up in football and basketball as well in high school. But as the story goes, his one true love was baseball. It was never a question. While he starred in baseball for Little Rock Central High School growing up, he caught the eye of Lindsey Deal, who knew Orioles GM Paul Richards. He reached out to Richards, as the story goes, and recommended to Richards that he should come give uh, Brooks Robinson a look here. And I want to take a second to set the stage here. This is in 1955, and it's worth noting that the Orioles had actually just moved to Baltimore from St. Louis. They were known as the Browns in St. Louis in 1953. And like most fr franchises post-relocation or expansion, they were struggling to find their footing success-wise in their new home. Now, Robinson was getting offers from several major league teams, but the Orioles sweetened the deal by selling him on the idea that he would get promoted to the show faster than with other teams. The Orioles really didn't have anything to lose, and they needed the excitement of a young rising player, and so they were willing to fast-track him. And that was enough to get Robinson to sign on the dotted line, and, and they were true to, to their word. Brooks spent a grand total of 95 games in the minors, hitting 331 with 11 home runs before his call-up to the majors on September 17th of that same year. Less than 365 days from signing his first major league contract at 18 years old, he was already getting his first cup of coffee in the big leagues. Was it a bit of a gimmick? It could have been. There was a lot of questions of whether it's you know, ready or not. So there, there's some questions whether they're trying to stir up some excitement or things like that. But nonetheless, he, 18 years old, already seeing the major leagues. He plays in just six games and managed two hits and 22 plate appearances, which, again, considering his age and inexperience, isn't surprising at all. Now, according to Baseball Reference, he was on average 10 years younger than the average major leaguer at that point. So, again, I think it would have honestly been weirder if he hadn't struggled. Now, 
unlike a lot of the players we talk about on this podcast, when it comes to talking about the stars, it would take a few years for the young Robinson to get going. He would begin 1956 in the minors, and despite the Orioles trading for third baseman George Kell in 1956, the Orioles made clear he was just keeping the position warm and serving as a mentor for Robinson until he was ready. Robinson would see brief and mostly unsuccessful stints in the majors over the next two years until 1958, when he would play his first full season in the majors. And again, he would struggle uh, across 145 games, hitting just 238 with three home runs and a measly 597 OPS, which is good for a 69 OPS plus. And this is part of the magic of Brooks Robinson's story. It's part of what I love so much is so far he had shown he just wasn't major league material. And most scouts would talk about walking away from watching him, wondering what the Orioles saw in Robinson. But indeed, the Orioles did see something, and they stuck with him. It's one of those fascinating, like, crucible turning point moments in an all-time great player's career where, at this point, you would have maybe been justified in the Orioles walking away from him. And they would have lost out on an all-time great player. We would have lost out on an all-time great player. But they believed in Robinson, and he would reward them by showing signs of life in 1959. Now, after spending half the year in the minors, Robinson was called, called up to the big league squad and responded at 22 years old by hitting 284 with 89 hits, 15 doubles, 4 home runs, 24 RBIs, and 29 runs scored across 88 games. And it wasn't even really a breakout season yet, but it was just a sign that the breakout was coming, that he was starting to put things together at the plate. Now, his defense was already there. He was worth 1.5 defensive war that year, and overall, it's worth 2.1 war. Now, the 1950s hadn't been that kind to Robinson, or really to the Orioles at all. Things changed rapidly for the better for both parties as the calendar changed over to the swinging 60s. 1960 would turn out to be the breakout year for both Robinson and his ball club, which it's almost as if those two things were related. At 23, Brooks has his first All-Star season, 294 with 14 home runs, 27 doubles, 9 triples, 88 RBIs and scoring 74 runs across 152 games to go along with a 769 OPS, which is good for a 108 OPS plus. These were two defensive war that year. And this was really the first year that people began to talk about Robinson's wizardry at the hot corner. He wins his first gold glove and makes both all-star games that year. Yeah, this is during that stretch where they held two all-star games each year, trying to drum up more money and, and hype. And despite being worth just 4.1 war that year, he finishes third in the MVP voting behind uh, winner Roger Maris and uh, his teammate Mickey Mantle. And that gives you an idea of how highly people thought of Robinson's defense. It was that he was okay hitter, 108 OPS plus, and he was just right there, right behind Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle in the voting. That's crazy. That's incredible. Now, some of that by the way, it may have had to do with the huge leap the Orioles made in the standings that year as a, as a team. In 1959, Baltimore won 74 games and finished 6th in the AL. In 1960, they won 89 games and finished 2nd in the AL right behind the Yankees, uh, the potential greatest team ever Yankees. So again, this is 1960. Back then, that mattered for MVP voting. So you have to wonder if that got factored in too. Now, it was pretty big news that the Orioles were turning things around and Robinson was suddenly the face of this kind of upstart underdog team from Maryland who had just who'd given 
the Yankees a chase a run for their money. They would miss the playoffs, though, because it's worth remembering back then there really weren't playoffs, just the World Series. If you won the AL, it was just whoever had the best record in the AL went on to face whoever had the best record in the NL to, to play in the World Series. There really weren't playoffs as we understand them yet. So keep that in mind. But they do miss the playoffs. And while that doesn't carry the same way as it does now, the Orioles were suddenly viewed as contenders, as, as, a, as an up-and-coming team, and that suddenly they were put on the map here. Now, 1961 was a bit of a down year following this breakout season for Robinson, as he would hit just 287 with seven home runs, 61 RBIs, 89 runs scored, to go along with 192 hits across 163 games. Now, considering he was the leadoff hitter, it's not all that surprising that his power was down, but even with that, Robinson was worth 1.9 defensive war and 3.5 war overall. He's again a two-time All-Star, uh, again, two All-Star games, uh, and wins his second Gold Glove and finishes 19th in MVP, MVP voting. The Orioles would finish in third that season, which would seem like failure, but in reality, they'd actually improve for the second consecutive season. As they win 95 games, uh, astonishing, the American League would see both the Yankees and the Tigers actually win over 100 games that year. Can you imagine making 95, <laughs> winning 95 games and it not being good enough? That's what that's wild. Whenever I look at the years before the playoffs, it just boggles my mind. <laughs> now, 1962, though, was the real true leap for Robinson. Here he hits over 300 for the first time in his career with a 342 OBP, 23 home runs, 29 doubles, 86 RBIs, and 89 runs scored. He was excellent yet again on defense, being worth 2.1 defensive war and 6.1 war overall which is tied for second in the AL that year, and he would finish ninth in MVP voting. Now, while Hank Aguilar beat him out by a nose of 6.2 war for the AL lead, he actually outplayed the MVP winner, Mickey Mantle, that year when it came to wars. The Mick put up only six war that year. Robinson had a true, genuine argument for winning the MVP award that year, which is just cool to see him go toe-to-toe with Mickey Mantle for crying out loud. Again, now, for the second year in a row, he's named the both All-Star Games, and he wins another Gold Glove. I think it's worth keeping in mind here just how early in the history of the Orioles we are. I'll bring that, keep bringing that up, but you know, we talked about it earlier, I know. But in every way, Brooks Robinson is the first true star in Baltimore Orioles history. You can't underplay how important that is, not just for Baltimore baseball, but for the history of baseball, too. The Orioles are one of the more storied franchises in the league and it all in many ways starts with brooks robinson uh, here in 1962 now the orioles would not continue their own ascent to stardom so to say uh they started the year before is they would win just 77 games and miss the world series but we then jump into 1963 and if 1962 was the liftoff year for robinson 1963 was the year he temporarily came crashing back down to earth, as he really struggled at the plate. He hits just 251 with 11 home runs and 26 doubles, with 67 RBIs and 67 runs scored in 161 games. Now, who knows if it was like injury-related, or if you actually look at his BABIP that year, it was atypically low. It was a 275 BABIP, which is about 25 points lower than his normal uh, BABIP. And you have to wonder... Sometimes there's a couple of these seasons where the power's down or some the average drops down a little bit. 
And what you have to wonder is, given how contact-oriented both Robinson was, but also most of that era of hitting in general was, you have to wonder, because if you remember I said Robinson really didn't walk or strike out all. That man had made a ton of contact. That meant he probably had some pockets with either within seasons or entire seasons that could be driven by luck in, in either direction, good luck or bad luck. That's what happens when you make a lot of contact. And given that his bait was so low that year, you have to wonder if some of that's just bad luck, like just like simply bad luck. That's just something to keep in mind. Uh, either way, Robinson struggles, and so do the Orioles, as they would both miss the playoffs again that year. The thing is, Babe Up really couldn't keep Robinson down for long, though, as 1964 would be the year he went from beloved star to true, like, genuine superstar. Across 163 games, yes, that's right, 163 games he, he played in that year. By the way, that's the second time in his career already he's played in 163 games. Robinson exploded, hitting 317 with 28 home runs, 35 doubles, 118 RBIs, and 82 runs scored. He was worth 2.2 defensive war, and while his 8.1 war didn't actually lead the AL in war, pitcher Dean Chance the league with 8.9 war, he did lead all hitters in war. And so in addition to more all-star awards and another gold glove, Robinson deservedly wins his first and only MVP award here as well. It was, I mean, just an incredible season for Robinson. I'm sure if they were doing the Platinum Glove back then, he probably would have won that too. Just an incredible season. The Orioles, in turn, also go as Robinson goes. They flourish as well, winning 97 games that year. But it likely speaks to how top-heavy the AL was at the time. And again, probably how flawed the playoff system was at the time. That not only did they win 97 games and miss the playoffs, but they won 97 games and finished third in the American League. Again, it's just nuts. I, how we went with the system for this long, I have no idea. But anyways, at this point, because if you look back, they won 90 plus games in three of I think the last five years at this point, and hadn't made the playoffs. <laughs> Just bonkers, but but still, they were officially cl- staking their claim as a team to be reckoned with. It wasn't going anywhere. Uh, the, the, they were going to be a force here in the in, in the 60s and the 70s here, and uh, and Robinson was really the face of that team across the league as they were making that surge. Again, it's important to note what that meant for him in the city of Baltimore and in baseball and all of that. Now, 1965 saw Robinson come back from MVP levels. Tamir All-Star, ho-hum, best third baseman of his era levels, hitting 297 with 18 home runs, 25 doubles, 80 RBIs, and 80 runs scored. Right around 20 home runs, for the record, will be his career norm from here on out. So he'll usually like hit somewhere between 18 and 22 home runs basically every year. It's respectable for his era. It's really worth keeping in mind when he was playing. But it's also worth noting that he only played in 144 games that season thanks to a Broken, I want to say it was a broken thumb from a from an errant hit by pitch. If he had played 100, you know, 62, 163 games, you have to think he would probably would have come closer to replicating his MVP season if it weren't for that injury. Baltimore holds its own despite Robinson missing some games, and they win 94 games, which still wasn't enough to make the playoffs, but they would finish in third again. And... Again, I just wonder what is the record for the most 90-win seasons by a team that's missed the playoffs. 
I'd be fascinated to know. Luckily for Robinson and the Orioles, though, they weren't going to find out for a fourth time. All this is about to change. After years and years of coming so close and winning so many games, 1966 would be the year that the Orioles finally hit pay dirt and made it to the promised land, winning 97 games and winning the American League. The team had made major changes, bringing in Gerald Hofberger as the new majority owner and Harry Dalton as the new GM. And determined to make waves right away, Dalton swung a franchise-changing trade for another Robinson, namely one Frank Robinson. And this was exactly what the Orioles needed. As he would become the, the clubhouse leader and would join forces with Brooks Robinson to really guide that team. And, and at the center of that breakthrough was the heart and soul of that team, Brooks Robinson. And together, this was the force that would really propel the impending sort of Orioles dynasty that was coming. Now, for his part this season, Robinson did his fair share of the hefty lifting. Hitting 269 with 23 home runs and 35 doubles to go along with 100 RBIs and 91 runs scored in a 776 OPS, which, for perspective, was worth a 123 OPS plus at the time. So 776 OPS was 23% better than the average hitter by OPS that year. Now, Robinson was named once again to the All-Star game while winning his seventh consecutive gold glove and finishing second in the MVP voting. That he finished at high was likely a testament to how well both the Orioles played and, frankly, to how beloved Brooks was across the league, especially with the press. His 4.6 war was nowhere near the lead. But during that era, it's hard to argue against the most visible player on the best team in the league, as we'll get to in just a second. Now, the Orioles, as I mentioned, would win 97 games. They win the American League, which means, that's right, they went to the World Series. Now, in the World Series, Robinson was struggling. It's just three hits in the series, including a solo home run. But the Orioles dominated the Dodgers. And for the record, I believe this is still like Sandy Koufax-era Dodgers. Just straight dominate them with four straight victories, including three complete game shutouts. That's how thoroughly they dominated him. It's a huge deal. Baltimore wins the World Series, and Robinson was quoted as having said, you dream about signing a big league contract. You dream about getting to the majors, and you dream about getting to the World Series. And I remember thinking, now if you never win anything else again, at least you've done this. And like that, just, it is that very, I don't know. I think sometimes winning a World Series or a there's so much chance and so much luck and so much uh, so many things have to go right for it to happen that like it can feel quixotic at times. I feel like he just sums up so perfectly that like you can stand like man nothing else I've got this for the rest of my life. It really puts the whole thing in the perspective there. But now suddenly the Robinsons are heroes in Baltimore, right? And it's incredible to think a new team basically went and won a World Series in just over its first decade of existence. That's how quick the, the Orioles' ascent was. It's really something else. And that's an achievement that will always be assigned to when you look at the lore and legends of of the Orioles. You're going to talk about Orioles greats like Frank Robinson, Boo Powell, Jim Palmer, and yes, Brooks Robinson. And that's... 
That's just something that you can't take away. And that's what he's talking about there. Now, the hardest thing to do in sports, though, is repeat. And there would be no return trip to the championship for the Orioles in 1967. The team was ravaged by injuries. And those who weren't hurt had the kind of seasons definitely hinted that the long World Series run had taken its toll. And so the Orioles would struggle and finish in sixth place that year. Now, Robinson, for his part, had basically repeated his 1965 season, hitting 269 with 22 home runs, 22 doubles, 77 RBIs, and 88 runs. He's an all-star again and wins yet another gold glove, but perhaps even more impressive than his consistency was the astonishing 4.2 defensive war he managed, which led the league. And his 7.7 war was second in the American League, despite receiving no MVP votes that year behind He wouldn't have won because Carl Yastrzemski put up an astonishing 12.4 war, which is nutty. But 4.2 defensive war is crazy. That number for a single season defensive war number is tied for 12th all time in single season defensive war. And the only third baseman ever put up a better season this season from a defensive war standpoint is, yeah, that's right. You guessed it. Brooks Robinson in 1968. We're going to get there in a second. But that, that, that's just astonishing. That's how good his defense was around this time period. Just no one was better. Now, speaking of 1968, Robinson is even better that year. Uh, consistent as ever. He hits 253 with 17 home runs, 36 doubles, 75 RBIs, and 65 runs scored. Once again, finishing with another all-star appearance and gold glove win. Now, this season right here, and really 1967 too, but mainly this season, are one of the reasons why statistically Brooks Robinson is fascinating to me. When Robinson won the MVP in 1964, he finished the season with 8.1 war. He actually topped it in 1968 with an 8.4 mark behind an astonishing 4.5 defensive war. Okay, So he actually outdid his MVP season. And that 4.5 defensive war is the seventh best defensive season ever by defensive war, and it's the greatest defensive season by a third baseman ever, at least statistically speaking. There's, there's no other way to put it. No third baseman touches this stuff in terms of how good of a defender they were. And it's just worth remembering how incredible a defender Robinson really was. Now, Baltimore rebounds in a big way here, winning 91 games, and they do miss the playoffs. They finish second in the American League here, um, missing uh, the playoffs. Now, One thing that people don't often bring up when they talk about the Summer of Love is that 1969 was the first year Major League Baseball expanded the playoffs. So no more of this. We can now talk about actually like making the playoffs as opposed to just jumping straight to the World Series. And while this was nice to see this expansion, actually didn't end up mattering as far as the Orioles were concerned, because they were absolutely unstoppable in, in 1969, winning 109 games, and they win the newly formed American League East division here. Now, Robinson, for his part, entering into his age 32 season, struggled at the plate, finishing with an OPS below 100 for the first time since 1963. It's 234 with 23 home runs, 21 doubles, 84 RBIs, and 73 runs scored. Despite this, he still makes the All-Star game and wins another gold glove, which, for the record, the gold glove especially was well-deserved thanks to his 2.9 defensive war that season. 
and his 4.1 war overall was good enough to earn him 23rd in MVP voting. Now, during this season, uh, it would have a special meaning because Robinson had both his 200th home run and his 2,000th hit. Now, in the playoffs, the Orioles would face the Twins in the ALCS, where they would provi- uh, prevail in three games. Robinson would hit 500 in the series at a 1.071 OPS. Then they would move on to face the Mets in the World Series, where they would unfortunately lose in five games. Robinson would struggle getting just one hit in the series, and the Orioles would leave the season finding themselves wanting. And given that Robinson had really yet excelled in any playoff series yet, the wonder if he was going to be one of those players who would be more of a regular season guy and then struggle in the playoffs. And we've seen those players. Guess what? Not the case. 1970, all that wanting fueled the Baltimore Orioles as they win 108 games and win the AL East for the second year in a row. Robinson rebounds in a big way, hitting 276 with 18 home runs, 94 RBIs, 31 doubles, 84 runs scored, and 764 OPS, which is good for a 109 OPS plus. Add another All-Star appearance and another Gold Gloves to the pile, as 3.9 WAR was good enough to earn him a seventh place finish in the MVP voting that season. The Orioles would make it back to the playoffs, though, and this is where Robinson really shined in 1970. First in the ALCS, again against Minnesota, by the way. He hits 583 with two doubles and two RBIs across three games. And then in the World Series, he goes absolutely bananas against the Reds, hitting 429 with two home runs in five games with six RBIs in the series. And there's a really funny story here. Um, I, I've mentioned a couple of the anecdotes from like Johnny Bench and uh, Pete Rose earlier in, in the podcast episode, but... I really like the story that Phil Jackman, uh, a reporter at the time for the Baltimore Evening Sun, reported. It was about 30 minutes before the fifth game, but it didn't look as if the show would go on. It was pouring. Brooks Robinson walked in the dugout, and Andy Echebarren, another player on the Orioles, was sitting there. He kiddingly said, Brooksy, make it stop raining. Number five, raising his eyes, said, stop raining. And it did. I'm getting out of here, Echebarren said, scurrying towards the clubhouse. And perhaps umpire Ed Hurley offered some validity with his remark that Robinson came down from a higher league. In, like, again, it's storybook. I just love it. Stop writing. He did, and it probably was even said nicely. <laughs> it probably was even like a demand. And nature just, okay, sure, we can do that. For you, Brooksy, we can do it. Now, in what felt, Fitting, Robinson was named World Series MVP as he was now able to return home a champion again for the second time. But this time, he was the biggest guy in the series on the biggest stage in the game. This is where Brooks Robinson was etched into the Baltimore legends and lore. I mean, etched in there in stone. Now, 1971 saw the Orioles try once again to win back-to-back championships, and they came darn close. Considering Robinson is now 34 and his 16th season in the league where he consistently played more than 150 games every single year, there's like a four-year stretch where he misses one game, and that's it. It's just crazy. He has actually the season of a young man with far less tread on his tires, hitting 272 with 20 home runs, 21 doubles, 92 RBIs, and 67 runs scored to go along with a 754 OPS, which is good for a 114 OPS+. plus. You know, add, add more all-star honors and another gold glove, and he finished fourth in the MVP voting with six war. 
the Orioles would win 101 games, once again run away with the AL East. It really did look like Baltimore was going to steamroll their way back to to back-to-back championships. But unfortunately, it was not in the cards, even though they did not face the St. Louis Cardinals. They would prevail in the ALCS against Oakland in three games, where Robinson would hit 364 with a home run, a double, and three RBIs to, to send Baltimore forward to face Pittsburgh in the World Series. Now, the series would go the distance, but the Pirates would prevail in seven games. For his part, Robinson is fantastic, hitting 318 with five RBIs across the series. But again, Pittsburgh would prevail primarily behind another player we're going to talk about here pretty soon, Roberto Clemente's heroics throughout the playoffs and the World Series that year. And while this wouldn't be Robinson's last trip to the playoffs, unfortunately, though, this would be his last shot at a third title. Now, in 1972, the Orioles, I I don't know if they were seeing the writing on the wall or if it was about age or money, but the Orioles would trade Frank Robinson to the Dodgers that year. And if nothing else has put the writing on the wall, the, the club would hang on for a few more seasons. They'd make the playoffs a little bit, but... This signaled the Orioles' powerhouse was dead. And no one knew that this was going to be the case, but it ends up playing out that way because no one else knew that 1971 would be the last year Robinson would hit double-digit home runs. But he manages just eight in 1972, going along with a 250 average, 23 doubles, and 64 RBIs. And he would continue to get goodwill all-star appearances. Again, he's one of those popular players in the world at this time period. And his defense was still winning him gold gloves, and they should have. The numbers supported that he should. He was a heck of a defender, still uh, with 2.6 defensive war. But you have to imagine at that age, with that much mileage on his body, it was probably more of like a situation where like his body could handle being good at the plate or in the field, but probably not both. He was not a young man anymore. And you just wonder if that was sort of the situation that he was in. And Baltimore... Would struggle as a team after losing Frank Robinson and having Brooks sort of struggle. They they, they just obviously there's not a recipe for success for the that team and they would miss the playoffs. And like I said, this well and truly puts an end to the Orioles dynasty of the, of the 1960s and 70s. Now 1973 is more the same for Robinson. He's put up nearly identical offensive and defensive numbers and, and really ditto for 1974 where really outside of squeezing out a 288 average. His numbers were pretty much the same. And to be fair, that's not bad, considering he's 37 at this point. Now, the Orioles would make the playoffs both of those years. They'd be eliminated by Oakland both times in the ALCS, and Robinson would struggle in both series. And the writings of the wall, again, he's 38, 37, 38 at that point. And it really wasn't until 1975 that Robinson's defense began to fail him statistically along with his bat. You would start seeing him put up near zero defensive war years. And in fact, in the last two years, I believe he was worth negative defensive war. So you really see his body start to fall apart there on him. Now, he tried to play for two more seasons at this point, and he only manages in those seasons 95 games played. He knew it was time to, to call quits, to hang things up. So finally, at the at the age of 40, Brooks Robinson retires after 23 seasons in the big leagues. And in a moment, fitting his sort of storybook life and his storybook career in his final at-bat of his big league Hall of Fame career, Brooks Robinson hits a walk-off three-run home run. Like, basically, in his last at-bat, he gets a chance to run the bases, and tip his cap to the crowd, 
it's just it's too perfect it's too perfect now after retirement robinson would become an orioles broadcaster in 1978 and he would remain there in that position until 1993 and he would basically remain a local celebrity he was in advertisements throughout baltimore throughout so really the rest of his life he was just a part of life in baltimore for really the rest of his life in 1983, he would be elected to the Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. He would remain active in baseball, owning a wide variety of minor league teams throughout his life. And he would actually consult and act as a representative of the Baltimore Orioles right up until his death. Now, he truly, I mean, he just truly was like the consummate athlete. He's what we talk about, like, without getting cliche about it. You know, I mean, Robinson's the guy you hope... If you have kids and they start playing sports, that's who they become. And like a perfect role model, seems like the perfect guy, the perfect teammate. I'm sure he wasn't perfect. He's human. But this is, again, if I'd written this a story, you'd tell me that it was boring. There wasn't really any conflict. There wasn't really any flaws or things like that. And, and that's, again, it makes Brooks Robinson sort of a unicorn in the history of sports and the story of sports. And I like that. I think it's fun. And I think it really is something the, the the sport needed and needs. Now, he's you think about him as a player too. He's easily the best third baseman of his generation. But also, again, I'm sold on the idea he's the greatest third baseman ever, at the very least defensively. But I, I think he's when you talk about as as playing the position of third base, he's the greatest third baseman ever. There are arguments to make for a lot of different players about the bat and the numbers and all of those things, but But I don't think that that really gets at the heart of who Robinson is either. Like, you can't just summate, uh, summate, summarize? Yeah, summarize just through statistics and just through those numbers and just even just through his play on the field. Just You have to also factor in how much he meant to to Baltimore, to, to Orioles fans, and to Major League Baseball as a whole. Despite that, though, we're going to try. So what we're going to do is, you all know the drill, we are going to take our last break here, and then we're going to come back, and we are going to try and rank Brooks Robinson here on our big old list of 77 now players. And we'll try and see where he stands right now in in the history of baseball and the tale and story of baseball as we know it and as we've evaluated it. Welcome back. Real quick before we dive in and start ranking and whatnot, let's take a look at the list. Let's refresh ourselves with it because it's been a few weeks. So to read off the top 20, number one is Sadaharu O. Number two is Satchel Page. Number three is Ted Williams. Number four is Josh Gibson. Number five is Barry Bonds. Number six is Mickey Mantle. Number seven is Greg Maddox. Number eight is Mike Trout. Number nine is Ricky Henderson. Number 10 is Ken Griffey Jr. Number 11 is Ichiro Suzuki. Number 12 is George Brett. Number 13 is Adrian Beltre. Number 14 is Shohei Otani. Number 15 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 16 is Eddie Murray. Number 17 is Edgar Martinez. Number 18 is Sandy Koufax. Number 19 is Tony Gwynn. 20 is Hank Greenberg. Now, going down to 25, that's Kenny Lofton. Number 30 is David Ortiz. Number 35 is Mariano Rivera. Number 40 is Jose Altuve. Number 45 is Vida Blue. 
Number 50 is Jim Cat. Number 55 is Ryan Braun. Number 60 is Matt Williams. Number 65 is Jason Veritek. Number 70 is Brad Radke. Number 75 is Herb Score. And to round out the list is Mark Pryor at number 76 and James Paxton at number 77. Now the question is, where do we look at Robinson? Now, I think the place to start is to say Robinson is a defense first, albeit the best defense ever, forward third baseman, who's an okay hitter, a good enough hitter. So I think it makes sense to start with some of his peers. He has 78.5 war for his career. And I think that we can then use that as a launching point to talk about several of the other players in that vein that we talked about. I know we've talked about a lot of third basemen lately. That's just how things have shaken out. We're going to start moving away from third baseman here pretty soon. Hang in there. I, I know you've put up with my particular love for the third base uh, position lately. But I think a place to start maybe might be Ron Santo over at, let's see, is that number 2024? So looking at Santo at 70.5 war and was criminally underappreciated in his time and was a better hitter overall than than Robinson was. But also, like looking at it, I think it's pretty clear cut. Santo also didn't didn't play nearly as long as, as Robinson. He started at age 20, so he started two years later than Robinson and only played 15 years in the league. So he didn't really have quite those years at the end. They kind of hurt a lot of Robinson's numbers. He has no MVPs. He he only has nine All-Stars and five Gold Gloves. So I think, considering Robinson also has more war, more hits, why doesn't have more home runs, I, I think that we'll put, I think we can safely put Robinson above Ron Santo. Now the question is, how do we feel about this versus number 23, which is Scott Rowland? So Roland's a little more tricky in that he all, he does have that MVP, doesn't he? No, I'm sorry. Take that back. He is the Rookie of the Year. He won a Rookie of the Year. So he doesn't have an MVP, whereas Brooks Robinson does. He's not quite an icon in the way that Brooks Robinson was. Now, he's more home runs than Robinson, but again, not by a ton. He's only got 316 home runs. He was a better hitter than, uh, than Robinson, but then again, we get down to defensive war and he's only a 21.2 which we know Robinson was way higher than that so I think again if you take and look at you plug in the MVP you plug in the World Series MVP you plug in two-time champion he's a by the way the 300 postseason hitter for his career you plug in 16 gold gloves all the all-star appearances it's just I think that there's a place where like you look at Roland for instance he finishes in the top 10 for MVP voting once in his career, whereas Robinson did it multiple times. Let's see, he comes in and he finished in the top top 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 times, right? So I think it's a clear cut. Brooks Robinson finishes ahead of, of Scott Rowland as well. Looking at one of my favorites, Joseph Daniel Votto here at Number 22. And that's another one where he's got probably about 14 war on, on Votto right now. I don't expect Votto necessarily to get up to 78 war like that. They both have an MVP. And Votto, whereas we can say Robinson was the best defensive third baseman ever. 
we're going to get a lot of mileage out of that term. Votto this is one of the greatest hitters of his generation. But I still think, I think at some point it has to count for something. He's he's the best. You heard me rattle off some of the numbers and all the things he leads third baseman in, and no one's even close. That has to count extra for something. So I think in the interest of brevity, I think I'm going to skip straight ahead of Joey Votto here. Then we get to Nolan Arenado. Obviously, Arenado is a much better hitter than than Robinson was, but you start scrolling down, and don't get me wrong, Arnold is probably the best, I think I've said this before, probably the best defender of his generation. But you look down, and again, only 19.1 defensive war. He's only 11 seasons in. It's not really... I could probably project Arnold might get up there, but for right now, Robinson has paced him out. He's had the two greatest defensive seasons of any third baseman ever. This is, I think, a clear cut. We just keep moving him up here. We get the Greenberg we talked about last year. I mean, last, gosh, last year. Well, we did talk about last year, but last week. And Greenberg's another interesting case here. So now we're getting into, as I talked about before in the beginning of the the episode, he's at 55.4 war, but he missed probably three, maybe even four prime seasons of his career to serving in World War II. He starts serving in 1941, and the year before, he wins the MVP. So it's hard to say whether or not we would have thought that, you got to imagine, as good as he was back then, he wins another MVP somewhere in here between 1941 and 1944, especially if you come back and wonder, even 1945, when he came back, he played half a season because he came back part of the way through the season. So like I said, he lost almost four full seasons of baseball. You gotta imagine he wins another MVP somewhere in there. He already has two. He's a five. He was only a five-time All-Star, but it's just weird. You have to wonder how much anti-Semitism played into that and some other things. And I will say this: I love Hank Greenberg. I think if you go back and listen to that episode, you'll know that for a player who I obviously would have never watched play, meant a lot to me when I was growing up. And it's, it's interesting because Greenberg was an incredible hitter and an abysmal defender, basically the exact polar opposite of. Brooks Robinson. But I think... I think for now, it's worth noting also, he's also a Greenberg's a two-time series winner. And I have a feeling Greenberg is going to eventually, as this podcast goes on, it's going to be a stopping point for a lot of different players that they run up into this. I have a hard time not believing Hank Greenberg's more important because of the things he accomplished and because of those MVPs and because... He was just the best. One point he's hitting in 1938, he's hitting 58 home runs in a season. And by the way, he didn't win the MVP in that season, which is crazy. That I love Brooks Robinson and I love his story and I think it's great. I think, man, that's a tough one. I am really, I'm really struggling with this because maybe the answer is let's ask ourselves about the guy who's right in front of Hank Greenberg, which is Tony Gwynn. It's, it's like one of those things if we look at Tony Gwynn, I go, oh, he's Got Tony Gwen beat. Then uh, probably have to revisit both that and Hank Greenberg's rankings. So Gwen's at 69.2 war, right? So he's got almost nine war on him. In terms of that, obviously Gwen was a much better hitter. Much better hitter. And this is going to boil down to is how much do we value defense is really, I think, the question I'm trying to get to. Because again, Gwen's another one who he ends up 
negative 7.6 defensive war for his career. And this is the question, is that, like, how much does it matter to us that Brooks Robinson is the greatest defensive third baseman of all time? How, what does that really mean? And I, I, I like to try and think I weight defense pretty heavily. That's something that really matters to me. But again, you get up to like Tony Gwynn. He's got like more, uh, I mean, he's got more war. And Gwynn played 20 years. So I feel like in his last year, what was he worth? He was worth just like 0.6 war. So I don't think he would have caught Robinson if he played three more seasons. Man, I think, I think for now, and we'll see how I feel about this in a week or so. I think I'm actually going to do this. I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to say that Brooks Robinson, because when you factor in then what he meant to Baltimore and what he meant to baseball, factor in all that stuff. And again, I really do weigh in when you say this is the greatest of something. That really matters to me. And it's worth saying Tony Gwen's probably the greatest contact hitter of all time. That is fair. Oh, man. Am I going to do it? Let's, I think for now, we'll play it a little conservatively. I think, no, I think, yeah, because I think Brooks Robinson is going to go here right above Nolan Arenado. Man, it's such a weird grouping of just the same third basemans that are great defenders, blah, blah, all like kind of bunched in here. But for right now, we're going to put Brooks Robinson in as the new number 21 uh, in front of Nolan Arenado. And I think we're going to call it there. And then we'll uh, let that sink in for two weeks and see what, what we think about in the next episode. So that's our episode. Thank you so much for joining in today. Next week, or next episode, I should say, I think we're going to do Adam Wainwright because he just retired this year. And we'll probably talk a little bit about some players that are similar to Adam Wainwright. And we'll go through there. So this might end up being a, a three-player episode or do something cool like that. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this week. This was a fun episode to talk about. Talk about Brooks Robinson is such a fun, fun player to talk about. It's such an important player to talk about. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have any thoughts or any feedback or want to talk to me about where I've put Brooks Robinson on the list, you can reach me at Daniel J. Port. You can reach the podcast at LB Legacies. It's both over on X. Or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Let's talk some baseball. In the meantime, folks, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I hope you all are avoiding some snow right now and getting ready for the holidays. And if I don't talk to you before then, enjoy your holidays. I wish the best for you and for all of your loved ones. Thank you so much.